Hello, listeners. Um, it's Philip here. Uh, you might have noticed a few like hiccup noises, and that's Mark filling the gas in his car. Um, Peter is also on, and uh, welcome. Uh, it's been a while, but your favorite podcast is back. Uh, by that I mean uh, the Doubles Alley, of course. Uh, where. At Doubles Alley Pod on Twitter. If you haven't listened to us before, you can find us there for, you know, just to get in touch. Um, and yeah, um, we're here to talk about the end of the season. Um, basically, everything post Roland Garros is fair game. We're also going to give out awards. Um, we're going to give out most of our awards at the end of the show, but. Uh, We'll give out one at the beginning. Um, it's the Charles Dickens Award. I guess Mark calls it the Charles Dickens Award um, for for his famous book, A Tale of Two Cities. Um, and we're giving it to, um, to Alexander Sverev. We're giving it to a dick. Yeah, yeah. We're, we're giving it to um, A Tale of Two Sverevs because right now... Um, his tennis life, one Sverev, is in great shape, whereas his personal life, the other Sverev, is uh, in tatters. Um, and uh, as an intro, I guess, um, Peter, is there a time when, I guess, one part of your life was was nice and rosy and just feeling good, and another part of your life was uh, the opposite? Yeah, I mean, there are a few times, but uh, I guess one would be my sophomore year of college when I had mono and um, was, had to sleep like 14 hours a night, um, had to sort of sacrifice a lot of my social life and, and things like that. But inexplicably, my squash was just on point, and I was able to just win some really big matches, even though I had mono. and could barely do anything else um but i think sort of 2020 is is also that in a nutshell for me because honestly things have worked out for me in 2020 like nadal won the french lebron won the nba title um like jobs going well um got biden won the presidency <laughs> yeah biden won the presidency got engaged and got married but it is just kind of like uh I don't know. It's it, it it's also just such a redundant kind of like day to day that I just wish there was like I don't know. We didn't have to be socially distanced and we could hang out and you could see your friends more and things like that. Yeah, that's a really good example. So, if you don't mind me um, piggybacking here. Far before Peter started speaking, I went right to my sophomore year of college. This was at a different time in uh, 1990. And it was for the exact same sort of reasons that Peter was talking about. Uh, squash was a different animal back then. It was still hardball squash. I had been a walk-on at Tufts University and never played competitive squash my whole life. Um, I had always tinkered around at the Dartmouth court. But I got the squash bug because the assistant tennis coach was the head varsity squash coach, and he encouraged me to go out for the team as a freshman. 
and I got into a few matches, sometimes as the number 10 player. And then somehow by the middle of my sophomore year, I won like three, four challenge matches in a row and I cracked the top 10 and was like eighth. And my squash was going incredibly. I think at the, that we were uh, the B league or the B division. I think I won all three of my matches there and every other aspect of my life was a lethal disaster. I remember I had promised a girl a date for a long time and I proceeded to get really stoned for the first time in my life before the date. And I ended up taking her to McDonald's and she was telling me this long sob story and I just kept laughing the whole time. <laughs> and then my, my grades were falling apart. I had lost a part-time job at my squash. It was the best of my life. So I, I, relate, I relate very well to Charles Dickens and, and Zverev and to Peter. <laughs> yeah, so so for me, uh, the tale of two Phillips really has to do with uh, the two games I play on my phone. Uh, when 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 my when my crossword puzzle game is like on point, um, my chess game is usually down, and vice versa. So that's um, it. Really balances itself out. So I'm neither totally like when I'm. I'm up in one, I have like a humbling force in the other, and so I'm I'm always quite balanced. But so yeah. Zverev had to make this Faustian bargain. Do we think that he made the right Faustian bargain? Yeah, I mean, uh, so the so the so what exactly is going on with Zverev is uh, one of his ex girlfriends has accused him of sexual assault at the U.S. Open, like, two years ago, or a year and a half ago, and another one is having a, right? a kid of his, but he's not, like, dating her. Um, I mean, but that's sort of something people congratulate him for, like, the uh, the kid. Um, yeah, and... Uh, meanwhile, his tennis, he won both Cologne tournaments. Uh, he got to the finals of Paris-Bercy. He played again in the uh, tour finals, and you know, and he made the finals of the U.S. Open. Made the finals of the U.S. Sport. Open. Uh, was sick in the French Open, but like you know, lost to Yannick Center in like a respectable match. So, like you know, tennis is going pretty well for him. And yeah, I mean, I honestly think uh, I guess from a Faustian bargain perspective. Uh, there's very little likelihood that he'll be held to account in the uh, in the sexual assault case, just because um, that's just like a notoriously hard to prove uh, thing. Uh, a lot of the people have been tight-lipped so far, like the ATP, like barely acknowledges it. Uh, very few players have like made statements on it, and uh, also he's like. Uh, if it did go to court, he would have to be tried in the U.S. And yeah, I guess the worst thing that could happen from it is uh, he would never play a tournament in the U.S. again because then they draw him into a courtroom. Um, so maybe that was his last U.S. Open, but I, I sort of doubt it gets that far. I think I, I think I think they settle. He'll pay her a healthy sum, and uh, that'll be that. So was it, don't you think the timing of it is a little coincidental? This ex-girlfriend finds out that he knocked up the succeeding girlfriend and then she made these claims. I mean, I don't mean to 
and maybe that doesn't matter within the context of this pod. But I mean, that's what Zverev said. He he mentioned like, oh, it's suspicious timing. Um, I mean, I mean, you could say that about uh, Blazy Ford on the Kavanaugh stuff. You can say that about uh, anything, but it's just like. Uh, I think the bigger question is whether, like, if it did happen, it doesn't matter when she said, like, when she comes out with the accusations, I don't think, because uh, what he did is, like, what he's accused of doing is pretty bad. Um, so, yeah, I don't, it might be, like, she might have read about this, been jealous, and came out with these accusations, but uh, I don't think timing really matters all that much. Um, like even yeah, if that's what happened, I also think that it might actually not be suspicious at all. Just because, um, I think that like with the Kavanaugh stuff, when somebody just becomes super successful or more successful than you thought, or or uh, more in the public forum, it might just trigger your just sort of anger and rage more. Um, if something did happen, I don't know. I mean, same if something didn't happen, but I, I don't, I, I, I don't, I'm not too skeptical on the timing, but it is just like, yeah, it's unfortunate news, unfortunate because it's hard to actually know what happened and unfortunate because, uh, if it did happen, it's just sort of, um, not something you want. Also, uh, yeah, I mean, he's unlikely to get, um, he's unlikely to get, uh, any penalties in court, but his penalties might be more sponsorship related because this really, um, like he wasn't all that likable a guy. Like I, for one, can totally see this happening based on the way he, he behaves on court. Um, like there are guys like. If David Ferrer, for example, had like these accusations, I would have a hard time believing it just because of what a saint he is like in tough moments on court. Whereas like with Sverev, he's just kind of whiny and entitled um, um, on court. And so I can see that translating off court. Um, and so his like uh, his marketability is not I mean, and his just like general likability is not all that high it's not as high as it should be considering his like, uh, attributes. Like he's a very good looking guy. Who's been a top five tennis player for the last like five years, basically. Um, and his sponsorship with Adidas is coming up at the, uh, ending at the end of the year. Um, and he's probably going to get a much lower number than he might've otherwise gotten because of this. So, um, that actually might be the more opportune timing than the, uh, than the kid announcement. So speaking of, uh, what, what were we saying there? Um, speaking of like sandbagging and do you think that, uh, Medvedev was sandbagging at the entire tennis season so he could catch <laughs> people off guard for the London masters? <laughs> he was playing I mean, I'm saying so well, <laughs> but it's really <laughs> interesting how this guy went from having like one of the, most under underwhelming, you know, tennis seasons, even if it was an abridged season, to being in like sicko mode the last two tournaments. 
And where did that come from? Yeah, <laughs> uh, it's it's great that he has this gear. But yeah, what you're saying is, uh, it's also um, it's also shows that he's not quite in like big three territory because he doesn't do it every week. Like he had one spurt like this last year in the summer, and then he sort of disappeared. Like disappeared near the end of the year there um yeah it seems like he's uh he's sort of delpo-ish in a way where he goes on just like streaks where he's unbeatable and then um it's quiet at other points you think that's physical do you think it's mental you think it's a, a belief in oneself you think it's they get a little lax when when they when they go on a run how would you if you were trying to coach him through through that so it doesn't repeat itself what, what what would you what would you change or do you think it just it's, gets hard to, it's hard to really know because so he went on this insane streak end of last year and then the end of the year happened and then at the beginning of the year he wasn't quite the same um but then COVID happened and so he wasn't sort of able to get his kind of um in sort of get into his rhythm until sort of um until sort of the second half of post-covid and he's gotten a little unlucky with timing where he the times he's gotten hot it's been right before a a um a a stoppage of play Hmm. and so what i'm wondering is if he can get hot in like march can he can he extend it through the season or is it one of those things where he has like a six week max on this just insane zone he can get in and then he then he'll have to take like then he'll just have bad bad results for the three weeks or three or four events after that insane zone. Yeah. I'm inclined to think the second thing that you said, Peter. I mean, at least at also, this point in his career. He's just not a good I clay mean, court player either. So like that's always gonna be a blip. Or at least for the next few seasons, that'll be a blip for him. He should be good on grass, though, right? Because that the, the faster the court, like I think those courts in London were playing pretty fast, and he seemed to play well. I mean, he's got the makings of a good grass player, correct? Where he can pick up the backhand quickly, uh, the serve can go in any direction, and it's pretty hard and flat. Yeah, his his the way he mixes up spins is like really incredible, and he's got really good slice. Like slice is one of the spins he uses quite a bit. I don't know why he's not good on clay. Like that guy can be a backboard, and and he has real stuff. He's not just sort of a backboard. I think a lot of clay is like moving naturally on clay, and he might just not have played enough on clay growing up. But yeah. I wonder if that comes with years. Like, I wonder if in two years he's actually really good on clay. I think you're probably right. I think he maybe hasn't had the physicality to, to grind it out for four or five hours. So maybe he, if he gets down a set or two, he just doesn't quite... Like, I mean, when he got down two sets in a break against Nadal in the U.S. Open... He definitely didn't give up. You know, there was a lot of resolve in that tournament, and there was some in this, even though it was two out of three sets. But maybe the resolve just isn't there quite yet on the clay. And, you know, maybe he gets tired from the hardcore season and he, he's just not able to go all in with the clay. I mean, that is a tough 
six-week grind leading up yeah. to the French. Maybe he's burned himself out before the French. That is like, to me, that's the toughest single court, you know, single surface grind in the whole season where it's four or five biggies, you know, before. I know that the hard court in the summer is, but those first three tournaments are, are really, you know, 250s and 500s, but you get thrown right into Monte Carlo, which is a 1,000. Then I think both Italy and maybe Madrid are also 1,000s. It's a that clay court grind is tough, so maybe you know one has to pace themselves and be willing to concede one of those tournaments or something to be to be really to be most ready for the French. I don't know. So, so yeah. I have I have the award for Medvedev. Um, he's got the Dow Jones Award because based on from week to week, it has its peaks and valleys, but it's generally trending up and a safe stock to buy. Yeah, it's a good call. I think we'll keep it at that. The Dow Jones for sure. The Tech Sector Award. <laughs> Do you guys think that all eight of the uh, participants, I mean, it didn't include Federer, it didn't include Shapovalov, who I assume was the first alternate, do you think all eight of those guys should be feeling pretty good about themselves going into going into next year? And are they all container, contenders for, for the big hardware? Or were they just placeholders, you know, for, for really still the big three? Well, no, I don't know. I don't know if it's a big three. Uh, a big three with a with a really deep bench. I don't know what you guys are think. What's your takeaway from from the last two months of the year? Um, I think uh, Djokovic sort of um sort of lost his form a bit after after the U. I think his best form was maybe the U.S. Open, but like even in the French, he wasn't at his best. Um, and then at the end of the season, he. He he just wasn't his. He didn't have full intensity even at the, even in the tournaments he he did play well at like uh, the year end he reached the semis but like he didn't have his full intensity. But I mean that's a that's a big year pacing right? They sort of each know you know what the icing on their cake is and once they get the icing they don't really care that much. I mean, yeah that yeah. Well, what I, what I'm trying to say though is that. Uh, like when Djokovic is in scary form, it sort of like makes it so the others don't really have hope. Um, but when Djokovic's intensity is at like seventy five percent, the other guys like Team and Medvedev can all of a sudden win big tournaments. Um, so I think it really is uh, still dependent on what Joker's intensity is like, uh, whether the other guys are contenders. But if like Joker's intensity lags, then like on hard courts, I think uh, Team and Medvedev are definite contenders, and Rublev and Tsitsipas are like are like uh, dark horse contenders, um, and Sverev too. So I think Djokovic needed needed a regroup. I, I'm not too worried about his Australian Open prospects, um, but I mean. He had a very disappointing U.S. Open. He's probably going to win that if he didn't get disqualified for, for, just a fluke. And so, so that, so that, so, so I guess we have a uh, we have a an award based on that for Djokovic. Actually, Peter, do you, do you, do you want to do the honors of unveiling the award? No, I'm just going to finish what I was going to say, and then, <laughs> and then um, in the French Open. He got embarrassed by Nadal, and I feel like he went into that match thinking he'd win, and that was probably a shock to the system because he hasn't 
been embarrassed by Nadal in a really, really long time. So I think he sort of needed to, to regroup. But knowing that Nadal's skills on clay transcend or supersede any other individual form of tennis greatness right now, should anybody, no, 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 should anybody be embarrassed when they get, I mean, I understand the stakes were high. He had been beaten off of six, seven, eight matches maybe or out of the last nine. But should anybody be embarrassed? I mean, him or Fed or anybody who's gotten their clock cleaned, losing to Nadal when Rafa really, really wants it. I mean, maybe, sure they, maybe they feel that way, but I'm not right. Maybe they I, shouldn't, but maybe they, maybe they feel it, even though they they, yeah. they don't necessarily should feel it, I guess. And I think, yeah. I think you, if you listen to Federer talk about just getting destroyed by Rafa in the 20, 2008 French Open, I think it was like 1-3-0. Oh. Um, <laughs> he was saying that 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 defeat um, really hurt his confidence for Wimbledon three weeks later when they played each other. And so I think even if, even if the rest of the world thinks you're supposed to lose, those guys think they're the best in the world and think that they should, if they're playing well, they should have a chance every match. And um, Djokovic just got thoroughly outplayed. And I think, that probably hasn't happened to him in a really long time. You think it's because he hasn't gotten any SNM spankings for a long time either? So maybe, you know, it's just, you know, he just sort of needed one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, so I guess the award we have for Djokovic. Right. Do, you, do you think that there's a carryover or there's only a carryover when he, when he gets to the clay season next year? Or do you think it's just, you know, you, you put a, you put, put the, you know, you clo- close the door to 2020 and you sort of, you know, he'll be in his, uh, on his favorite court in 2000, beginning in 2021. And so the spanking won't carry over in terms of, uh, you know. Yeah, football. I think it's just a short-term spanking. And I think beginning of 2021, he'll be his old self. And I will, I will take Djokovic against the field in Australia. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so the award we have for Djokovic is the Karma Reversal Award. He's he's had so many um, moments where just karma like just kept rising for him, um, where he just kept expending karma points. Like like with uh, Wimbledon against Federer, he had no business winning that match. He had, like twice twice he had match ball. He was facing match balls against Federer in Grand Slams. He had no win. It, no, and then against Nadal in the Australian, and then even against team in the Aussie this year, he was the worst player on court, but ended up like winning it. Uh, and then Karma in one moment, uh, he he tosses a ball to a line judge and it hits her in the neck. Uh, totally reversed itself. He had an undefeated season going, uh, and then he was by far in the best form of anyone at the U.S. Open. He does not get his uh, 18th Grand Slam. Then he, uh, yeah, he he doesn't have his best form at the French, and uh, his intensity, I guess, uh, leaves him at the end of the season. So it started out as like potentially a uh, a uh, an undefeated legendary season for him, and ended up like. You know, a little bit disappointing because 
now Nadal has 20 Grand Slams and Novak has 17. Um, whereas, like, if Novak did everything he could, like, uh, like if Wimbledon were played, Novak would have been the favorite. Like, there's a world in which Novak has 20 Grand Slams. But, yeah, karma reversed itself yeah. for him. Although the interesting thing about all, all three of these guys is it's 17 more Grand Slams than pretty much every other great player is going to get. So does it? I still keep wondering: has some have so many players underachieved? Did now Courier and McEnroe and Connors and Agassi and Becker were they all underachievers for not even? I well, I guess Sampras got more than ten. Did the prior generations underachieve, or just the big three have overachieved? Uh, that's a good question. I just think sports medicine um, might have improved, and also, I, from what I hear, uh, prize money is like much higher, and that like keeps people playing for longer. Like in terms of instead of like the first tinge of being like. Uh, of like the body starting to fade, like they'd they'd retire in the past. Like this, uh, they're more they're more inspired to to get that second wind uh, in their early thirties now. Yeah. So what you, Phil? What are some of your other takeaways from London? Other specific matches you were impressed by? Uh, um, a a sort of another gear and some of the players that you didn't expect uh, a letting off the gas pedal at times that you didn't expect. What, uh, what are some of your takeaways from, uh, from that? Uh, one takeaway is that uh team and Rafa just always have awesome matches. Like that match was probably the highest quality match of anyone in London when team beat Rafa in two tie breaks. Um, and if you look at their head to head, it's just like, there are a few lopsided results, but it's it's usually just battles. Um, like their matches this year, I mean, one was uh, the Australian Open um, when Team finally got his Grand Slam victory against Rafa, um, and then also like Team, I looked up Team's head to heads against uh, the Big Three. He's uh, up against Federer. I think he's up like five two against Federer. He's pretty close against Djokovic. I think it's like six and nine, and he's like seven and nine against Nadal. So uh, there's a world in which he he ends up with winning records against all three, which uh, which would be really good for his um, legacy if that indeed happened. Like if he got four or five Grand Slams and ended up with winning records against Big Three, like he could actually be considered a legend. Yeah, that's that's true, um, and. Those guys are getting older. I, I feel like that that is in play for, for teams. Well, this should be the sweet spot of his career, should it not? I don't know how old he is, 26, 27, 25. 27, I mean, he should I think. be at the age where he's hitting his peak, correct? Yeah. Yeah, like this coming season should be like pretty big for him. Um, yeah, he's got... He's, like, such a freak athlete, too. Like, he's such a physical, like, phenomenon. Um, that said, like, team team was a physical phenomenon against uh, Medvedev as well, and Medvedev just soaked it up. 
like Medvedev, uh, I think the final was also like revelatory in that um, Medvedev really does match up well against team. And if these are the next two guys, like that's a good advantage Medvedev, you know? Like, because Medvedev, in the end of the day, doesn't really care how hard you're hitting the ball. As if, like, it's it's more about placing it near the baseline and and all of that. Um, and like those little things, like uh, the ang- the the well angled inside out forehand and all of that. Um, yeah, I think Medvedev has more nuance, like slightly more nuance in his game. Um, and if that's the next big matchup, like uh, the team, the team era might might never happen. But at the same time, it might happen. And if it does, he's a legend. So, so I have a different take from the final. I thought that that match could have gone either way. I thought that um, team was thoroughly outplaying Medvedev for the first set and three quarters, and I think he was up a set and a break kind of late in the second set. And then Medvedev um, pulled it out in the second set. And uh, Medvedev had a similar experience against Nadal, too. Nadal was serving for the match up a set in the, sec- when he- in the second set. Medvedev broke back and never looked back after that. And it's the kind of thing where he was the best player of the week, but he wasn't crushing. It wasn't. He won two matches that could have gone either way. Um, and I, if I were team, I would not be too... Um, like, I, I don't think team was playing the best tennis of his life. I think he was playing good tennis. I, I feel like this was one of Medvedev's streaks where he was playing um, at his best level. I, I just... I think that... Um, it was a disappointing loss, but it's not one where he, where we should question um, team, team sort of prospects if he has to get through Medvedev long term. Yeah, it's also team's just a significantly better clay court player. So like, yeah, that's a wrinkle. And like, if they do play each other a lot of times, like, it's close. It's like. It's very tight on one surface. Maybe, maybe Medvedev has like the slightly higher ceiling on hard court, but Team has the other two, like pretty handily at this moment. Yeah, yeah, that's true. And I, I wonder if, um, if, uh, sorry, I'm blanking on what I was gonna say. Oh yeah, so one thing. So one of the things the announcers were saying was that it used to be a best of five final. And I think for a tournament like that, it kind of has to be to be like fully legitimized um, as more than a Masters 1000, partly because in best of three sets, like I was saying, like team was outplaying them for uh, more of the match than Medvedev was outplaying team. Like team was outplaying Medvedev for, one and three quarter sets, whereas Medvedev outplayed team for one and a quarter sets, but Medvedev ended up winning. Um, and I feel like best of five, they kind of needed a best of five to really sort out who the better player was. Yeah, I would have really liked a best of five for that match. Um, that said, it did go like three and a half hours. So, but then what's your suggestion on that? Do they then play it on a Monday? 
Do they play the semis on a Friday? You know, do you do, do you make sure the semis finish by Saturday midday? Because to go three long sets one day and then five the next is kind of tough. I, I, I mean, would start a day early. I would start a day earlier. That like, makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. So, so I mean, do we have an award for team for his season? Yeah, I, well, I think we have a we have a couple awards there. Um, you know, one of the awards I was thinking was like the Viagra Award. <laughs> you know, he sort of, for the most part, he takes his Viagra at the right time. But you know, if he takes it a little too early in the day, the Viagra wears off, and so he gets a little limp <laughs> or a little less less potent at the. At the wrong time, I would say that's why I feel like there's a couple different. I think he, for... he took it at barely the right time in the U.S. Open against Zverev. Um, yeah, he took it. He, he remembered to take it after the second set, right? He had forgotten he, to take his Viagra. Yeah, yeah, and it it lasted uh, just long enough. Yeah, he was also the beneficiary of some luck as well. Um, just, just in in general, the fact that he got to play Zverev. I mean. I think any other player would have capitalized on the two sets to love advantage in that <laughs> final. Probably even like Gasquet would have, <laughs> maybe even Benoit Paire. But the only one who would not capitalize on that was Verov. So that was like the ideal person to be playing when you were playing like shit and down two sets. <laughs> that match is sort of um, legendary for like how bad the quality was. Like, I think like. I think we might be remember. I think we might remember that match like ten ten years from now, just as like the worst Grand Slam final we've ever seen. The only other, I have a question for you, and maybe you have a good award for it. He does double fault in some of the most inopportune times a person can ever double fault, and I know, I know. Is it the is it the Alexander Zverev Award for double faulting at the wrong time? I mean, what what's the name of that? I mean, I know that he got. 90% of the time, he digs out a big serve when he really needs one, or he just, but he double faults at like the worst possible time to double fault. Are, are you talking about Zverev or team? Both. Both. Yeah, because team was down four love in the third set tiebreak against Joker, and he double faulted on the first point. And it's just like, oh God, like this is happening again to him. It's sort of, was it Kenny from South Park who always like barfs when, or was it, it was one of the South Park characters who always barfs when like a girl talks to him. Cartman who always barfs. Or Stan. Yeah. Yeah, Stan or Kyle, like, yeah, his like, the girl he has a crush on talks to him and he barfs. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. um, But yeah. I think the double fault itis. Uh, it last year around this time it was Felix who we were talking about, and then um, in the U.S. Open it was Sverev who was doing it, and in the Tour Finals it was Team who was doing it. So it's really it's being it's being passed along. Uh, I think Team has it at the moment. So one of our awards. So you know we've kind of left Roth out of this conversation. What what award would you give him? I mean, um, and, and I, I know that I was thinking with with uh, team that we give him the and I forget what the name of the character is, but the um, flowers for Algernon award because <laughs> you know his medicine for the most part you know kicked in at the right time, but he sort of has to know when it's going to wear off as well, and it's it sometimes wears off at the end of a match. 
what kind of award would you give to Rafa? Who had like probably one of them? I I would I think he would say it was the most, in a way, the most lopsided year of his career. Not that it was a year; it was sort of a mini year. But you know, he he just had a strange year all the way around. Uh, even the yeah, fact like that he if, if he hadn't the won the French Open, to me was about as strange as it got. I, I never <laughs> to consider that he would play that. Then he sort of played to win, but then he he just had a strange strange year all the way around. So I, I don't know what, what kind of award you would give him. So he was at 19 Grand Slams before the season started. This year he tied Federer at 20 Grand Slams, and he did it by uh, by just um, milking the source. <laughs> We're giving. I think the award for Rafa is the the golden calf award. He just keeps milking and the milk just keeps coming and it keeps coming and it keeps coming and the milk ain't going to run out. There were, there were already 12 glasses full of milk and you, you weren't sure if one more glass was there, but the, the calf had no problem with that 13th glass. And, and, uh, and, and, um, and so I guess the rest of the season, you know, maybe a little disappointing. Um, he didn't get to play the U.S. Open. He didn't, uh, he didn't get to the finals of Australia, but he had a good match. Um, Definitely. He, maybe the results were a little worse than he'd wanted, but at the same time, he didn't have any terrible losses. But he got... He, the season was a success because he he milked the golden calf one more time. So if this, also, if, if this do calf you think has... it's any coincidence that the only other tournament he won was Acapulco, given the quality of the of the milk of the cows <laughs> <God>. there? <laughs> yeah, you know, uh... very, very very strategic about where you know where he gets his milk. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I, I think if. Uh... If his sources of lactation have one more <laughs> glass in them, uh, he'll have fourteen French Opens. Will be he, so, which will mean he will have as many French Opens as Pete Sampras had Grand Slams, which is interesting to think of because it wasn't a long time ago that fourteen was the record. I want. I feel like you guys are burying the lead, though. I, I want to get back to Acapulco. Do you think there's any <laughs> chance? After he wins his 14th Grand Slam, that he decides to retire during the Acapulco tournament. Is there any way? I feel like I feel like this whole Acapulco thing is very underrated, and I don't think tennis fans really appreciate the kind of commitment the players make in, in playing that tournament, and, and you know, and, and trying to do their best. Yeah, you know, it is possible, though. I think he's a. Uh... <laughs> I, I think uh, I think Acapulco he could he could play his last tournament there so that he can then um, retire. Uh, but uh, yeah, um, Peter, what do you think? Yeah, I think just I, I hadn't connected the dots with the theme of milk, but it's just so clear now. <laughs> thank you, thank you, thank you. So, Speaking so, of milk, so Pete, any other any other people who are gonna who, who melt COVID for what it's worth, melt it either by playing or not playing. I think, I think, like yeah, I, think I think we have, around. I think we have uh, our our boy uh, 
Diego had quite a hell of a season. Um, and Mark, you hadn't like you had an award for him. Like he's got like the hottest girlfriend on tour at the moment, and everyone loves him. And he had his best tennis ma- tennis season by far. So like Mark, given the that set of circumstances, uh, do you have an yeah. award for him? Yeah, I mean, there's several awards. You know, I would say that to a certain degree, and I'm sorry if this comes across as a little sexist, you know, but Diego Schwartzman's the equivalent of like the girl who you just think is incredibly hot, you know, with her clothes on, and, and you just, you sort of like her for her butt, and then, you know, there's you just find out there's even much more than meets the eye. We already had total unrelenting respect for, for Diego, Diego because of, uh, because of just, you know, he's part of the tribe and he's an overachiever. But then he took it to a new level this year. He took it to a no le- a new level. So he gets he gets the Julio Franco Award. Um, we we know that he generally does not rush the net because he's afraid of tripping over his package. <laughs> but um, I don't think he realized that, that you know just just how just how impressive his package was. So I, I won't get too far into it. I've heard the story is a bit hearsay, but I hear that Julio Franco played in the major leagues until his late 40s, almost as long as Jamie Moyer, um, was was very impressed with what he brought to the table. And so he would do interviews in the nude, and there were a couple female journalists who said they couldn't cover him anymore because they, <laughs> they just couldn't focus on the interview. And then there was a male journalist who said that he wanted to interview him even more because it allowed him to question his sexuality. So we're going to give the Julio Franco Award to... To Diego Schwartzman for, you know, for bringing his A game in, in all the right ways. <laughs> <laughs> that that story about Julio Franco, A is is I find it really funny, but B that is that is one that you would not hear any. That is definitely a pre twenty fifteen kind of story, um, and. Uh, I have my yeah. own. I have my own similar story. Uh, it doesn't. It involves m- me sort of being the journalist in that uh, I was. I went on a date with this girl who uh, who really enjoyed art and like drawing. So I went to like a, a figure drawing class with like a nude model. Uh, okay. And the dude was this guy who like who literally had a penis down to his knee and it was just like i was just think it's like this girl i'm dating is like staring at that for like an hour and a half and i'm just like i really hope she doesn't expect that like i really hope uh i really hope he doesn't chatter up at the end of all this (laughs) And then, also, what was kind of funny is the guy was so comfortable, like, just being naked in front of, like, 15 people. He was, like, I remember, like, uh, in, like, one pose, he, like, just looks me in the eye and is, like, you done? Can I, like, change positions now? I'm, like, uh, no, 30 more seconds, please. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, is I can see Diego Schwartzman do it. Hold on, though. If your nude model or your nude subject is very well endowed, is it considered bad art? 
Is it lowbrow out if you represent him entirely differently? Dude, I, <laughs> my, my, I'm not a very good drawer. I basically drew a stick figure with an enormous penis. That's Diego Schwartzman. Yeah, that's Diego right there. There you go. That's, that's, a, that's a far better story than Julio Franco. Excellent. <laughs> yeah. Anyway. I think we're at the 45-minute mark, and we've gotten uh, quite, quite so that makes it quite a, um, a girthy podcast, I would say, um, in that spirit, I think. So uh, our, listener, our listeners want to know when they can hear from us again. Are we going to do our annual Christmas, you know, Christmas gifts and stocking stuffers? Can they expect that about a month from now? Yeah, yeah. Well, we'll definitely have our Christmas podcast. We'll have a 2000. 21 preview um and yeah whenever the australian open is we'll be we'll be we'll be definitely in business for that so you can definitely expect a christmas podcast and a 2021 preview um and yeah maybe in between now and christmas there might be another another special themed podcast uh who knows um but yeah, uh, that about does it. You can find us at Doubles Alley Pod on Twitter, and uh, if you like it, subscribe and give us a five star review. Um, and without further ado, La Bamba. <laughs>